It's hard not to add a side of hot, crispy hash browns to your favorite McDonald's breakfast. It's even harder not to eat said hash browns before you get home. Hey, Crooked Conversations listeners. <laughs> That's right, you. <laughs> That's right, you. We wanted to let you know that we're taking the month of April to work on some very exciting content for this feed for this show a plus content coming your way don't worry cooking it up right now we'll be back to releasing episodes every week so you can hear conversations from diverse voices on a range of issues from politics to sports to media and more we're going to dive deeper into the news and stories that everyone's talking about by bringing you more mini series to go in depth guys we're giving crooked conversations a makeover it's going to come back better than ever yeah you won't even believe it. you're gonna be so excited for the new quick conversation. This is like the summer between eighth grade and freshman year. You come back, just a new person. That's right. That's Cro- right. Crooked con- Except for me, I was just as fat. <laughs> crooked combos. This is Jalisa Arce, writer and author of My Underground American Dream and Someone Like Me. You are listening to Crooked Conversations, and this is our fourth and last installment of our special series, On the Brink, Women Who Are on the Edge of Making History. Today, we are joined by Saju Bonjuani, who is on the brink of ushering a better, more representative democracy with her work at New American Leaders, an organization that trains and inspires immigrant leaders of all racial and ethnic backgrounds to run for office. She's also the author of People Like Us, the new wave of candidates knocking at democracy's door. This conversation left me with a lot to think about, from how do we get more people of color elected into office to how do we engage voters in a way that makes them take real part in our democracy. I hope that you'll be inspired by this conversation and moved into action. Sayu, thank you so much for being with us. I'm so excited to have this conversation with you. I was watching your TEDx talk and you said something that really resonated with me. You said that there are 84 million Americans who are immigrants or children of immigrants and almost all of us had had to revise or repurpose our dreams. And I thought, oh my God, she's so right. Like all of us who come to America, we come with this idea and this big dreams and then we realize that things aren't as easy as we thought they were going to be. Um, But I think the immigrant spirit is one of resilience. So how have you repurposed your American dream? Well, you know, I came to this country um, with the intention of learning, uh, of getting a college degree and going on to become a teacher. Um, And, you know, I guess some people might think that that I still do that because I feel like training immigrants to run for office is still kind of staying true to my desire yeah. to be an educator, right? But the truth is that I learned very quickly that the American dream was uh, inhibited by the systems that are in place, the systems that prevent people with the right papers from getting the right jobs, um, the systems that prevent people from being protected by a government that is supposed to take care of its people. Um, And so how I repurposed my dream to become a teacher is that I ended up becoming an organizer. I first started an organization for South Asian youth in Queens. Um, I kind of started 
at home, if you will, you know, my my experience as a South Asian um, informed the decision to start there. And then I very quickly understood that my experience as a South Asian immigrant was very similar to the experience of many other immigrants. And um, and so I ended up applying to be the Commissioner of Immigrant Affairs for New York City, which was an amazing job. Um, I, you know, I got to travel all around the city and meet immigrants from all backgrounds. But more importantly than anything else, um, it taught me why my voice at the table really mattered. Like I sat around uh, tables in city government helping people understand the immigrant experience um, in a way that only I could. Uh, and it's because of that that I now run New American Leaders because I know what it means to be a person with a certain set of experiences helping to shape the policy for my community. Uh, New American Leaders uh, is entirely focused on bringing more and more first and second generation Americans into the political process by helping prepare them to run. And so I have a new dream, which is to have a democracy that works better for all of us, a government that looks like the people it represents, and a government that uh, and, and politics that is more transform transformational than transactional. Um, and so, you know, I got lucky. I ended up being able to take my experiences and transform them into something that um, is really hopeful and inspiring for me. Um, but I wouldn't have been able to do that, and I wouldn't have done that if my original dreams didn't hit up against road roadblocks. Right. Yeah. Well, that's great. I uh, I love this repurposing of the dream that you've done. And um, I think through your repurposing of, of your dream, you've been able to make other people's dreams become a reality. And that's amazing. Thank you. Yeah. So um, I guess just to give some background and context, um, can you tell us a little bit about how you first came to the US, um, I know you mentioned your student visa, and like, what was the original dream of coming to America? Well, the original dream, honestly, was that I would come here and go to grad school, uh, go to college and grad school, and go back home to Belize to teach. Um, but I imagined that I would live in America for a few years and uh, practice, if you will, my teaching skills. Um, and I think I really bought into the idea that America was a place where I could learn many things that were like the best and brightest ideas in education and take them back mm -hmm. home, uh, which is to Belize where I had grown up. So I had a very close relationship with the United States. I think, you know, people come to U.S. for the first time as immigrants. But for me, I came to the United States as an international student after having gone back and forth between Belize and mostly Miami um, for many years as a tourist. Um, but when I came with the intention of staying for a longer period of time, I had a student visa and then I got um, my student visa was changed to a visa that allowed me to work. And uh, I got my first job actually in publishing because teaching I thought I wanted to teach, and the New York City Board of Ed said to me, well, you can teach with us with this visa for six months, but then we're not going to be able to keep you on or work with you to change your status. And I wanted to be in the United States longer, so I thought I will try publishing. Mm -hmm. And then I quickly realized um, after getting uh, my first job in publishing that um, – 
that, in fact, that visa wasn't going to allow me to have access to any job that I wanted. So on paper, I was eligible to work in any job. But in practice, uh, many employers said, well, you know, we don't employ people who are not green card holders or citizens, um, or as in the case of the Board of Ed, they said, we're not going to really work with you to stay here long term. And so the dream of... uh, you know, getting everything that I could from the United States and going back home was very quickly aborted. Um, and because I need, I mean, it's such a long story. Like, I don't, you know, there, like for all <laughs> of us, there was like one way you go and then it's like, oh, no, wait, maybe that's not going to quite work. And, you know, I guess the thing is like, it's not as if you... It, I hadn't grown up here. So for me, that that's a very significant thing, that this wasn't the only home that I knew, as it is for many of us. And I guess for you, right, Julissa, like this was the only home that you knew. Um, yeah, I mean, I think for me, it was, um, for me, it's always a little bit like um, weird to, to say like this is, I think for some people, it definitely is the only place they've known because, you know, when we think about like dreamers, they came here when they were, many of them came here when they were babies, right? Like one or two, three years old. Um, for me, like I came here when I was 11. So uh-huh. I had, I had a good sense of, of what my home in Mexico was. And, you know, that's why in my, in my second book and someone like me, like I talk a lot about what it was like to grow up in Mexico and half the book is spent in Mexico because I didn't want to, you know, I didn't want people to know that like, like you, I had a home and I had a place where, um, where I lived and where I was happy before I came to live here. Um, but, but going back to sort of like this repurposing of the dream, what, what kind of struck me about how you were able to repurpose your dream was not only, you know, to show your own resiliency, but also, um, in the way that you used it to kind of open doors for other people and help other people. Um, you were the first New York City of Immigrant Affairs Commissioner, um, and now you've started this organization, New American Leaders, where um, where you are inspiring and training the, the next generation of, um, of people who are gonna who are gonna run for office. And that that to me was like one of the most um, kind of striking beautiful things about your story is that you know you like you you said I've aborted that dream but uh but your new dream and and the way that you've repurposed it is through um through helping others and creating a better democracy for all of us well thank you for saying that and you know it's actually very connected right because the only reason I knew to do this work was because I understood that there are probably lots of other people like me, um, and I actually met lots of people like me who had to repurpose their dream. And it became clear to me at different points in my professional life. And sometimes I joke and say that I'm a professional immigrant in the sense <laughs> that like, my, my professional life is, is in many ways tied to being an immigrant. Like I, When I started a youth organization in Queens, uh, I started it because as a young person in America, I started to understand that it wasn't so easy for um, our parents to help us navigate this life, whether it was college life or work life or options. And then when I became commissioner of immigrant affairs, I went in, you know, at the time, it was six months after September 11th. And so that experience of being... um, you know, under attack um, and having my community be under attack was very personal to me as someone who is South Asian and uh, who 
had lots of friends and community members who were American Muslims, uh, and even even if they weren't American Muslims, because we looked like the men who had attacked the World Trade Center, we were being targeted, and our kids were being targeted, and our the men in our community were being targeted, and and so that experience of you know, I, th- I think it gives me a lot of strength, as I suspect it gave you in writing your story. It gives, gives us a lot of strength to contextualize our experience it, as part of a broader immigrant experience. And when I started New American Leaders, it was really about that. It was about knowing what it meant to have someone like me with my experiences at the table and what it would mean to have someone like you and someone like Rashida Tlaib or someone like Ilhan Omar at the table making the decisions about our communities. Because like for us, it's not abstract to feel like right. an outsider. Yeah. And you mentioned 9-11 and something you talked about in your TEDx talk as well. And I know know, probably every person uh, knows where they were, what they were doing and remembers 9-11. Right. And I think for immigrants, there is this whole nother layer to 9-11 because so much of our lives changed. And, you know, all of a sudden, um, any kind of dream about uh, the DREAM Act passing in 2001 was sort of erased and any kind of immigration reform kind of went out the window um, after after 9-11 and how much you know, things have changed. And we've talked, we've talked in, in, in other cricket conversations about, you know, the start of DHS and kind of all that, how all that came about. But um, one of the things that you also mentioned was that your, your journey to the U.S. started as an international student and it took over 16 years for you to become a citizen. And yet you still consider yourself one of the lucky ones. Can you um, enlighten us on why the process was so lengthy and why some people, no matter how long they've lived in the U.S., can never adjust their immigration status? Well, so, I mean, first of all, I have I want to own that I had the privilege of being both English-speaking, but also being able to, you know, understand the forms I had to fill out and be able to pay for the fees that I had to pay. So there was like this set of very practical things that uh, that helped me frankly, do it in a pretty timely fashion. Um, but the, you know, first I came as an international student, as, as you've mentioned, and then I got a job that helped me apply for a green card. And then I had a, what, you know, that permanent resident card, which many of us know of as a green card. We did, I had that for something like five to seven years. Um, and then I was, I, you're eligible, I think, after five years of having your green card. So, you know, not many of us are not watching the clock and waiting for that moment. Um, so it sort of snuck up on me and then I was ready to apply. But the fee at the time, I believe it was $195. Um, and then I think it was at the beginning of 2000 that the fee was going to go up to almost $500. I'm not remembering. Well, the now n- it's the, 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 the application fee for the citizenship, citizenship application fee is now almost $700. Exactly. So it had gone up um, from, it was like, I think it was 125 or 175. And then it was going up by, it was going to triple something like that. I very re- distinctly remember that because that was a big impetus to get the paperwork in within that time frame. So, um, 
and a number of us, number of friends of mine who were eligible kind of just made it a priority. I mean, look, it's like, you know, getting your dental exam or your mammogram or you know that you're supposed to do it and it sits on your desk um, until you finally get around to doing it. And that's roughly what happened. I was, I was eligible and then it was the chain, the fee was going to change. And I was like, all right, well, I better do this. Otherwise, I'm not going to be able to afford it. Um and then we applied and then I got called in for my fingerprints and then another few months passed until your interview and then another few months passed before you get your uh, you get called in to actually go through your naturalization ceremony before you become a citizen. And so that whole process took, you know, even from the time that I applied, I think it was probably about 18 months. Um, and that's because there were no hiccups, right? And so to your question, um, I mean, just like, you know, we probably all know people who have gone through the process, but, uh, and when I became commissioner, I encountered many of these people who had applied and for years they hadn't heard, but it had never occurred to them that they could call and get an answer. And then sometimes the people who call and try to get an answer just get switched around um, to lots of different places. And what we did when I was commissioner is many people who had missed weddings and funerals in their home countries because their paperwork was just lost in the shuffle came to us and because we knew who to go to we were able to call on their behalf we didn't do anything that was um, outside of the law it was just a matter of getting people an answer and and this was even before DHS and all that so you know we have this system that is not really working because it wasn't designed to work. And we have people who don't feel that many millions of people who, although this is their home, they don't feel like they understand the system or they don't feel like they have a right to get the answers. Um, yeah. And so that's why it takes so long. Yeah. And I, you know, so, I mean, kind of where, where I also wanted to highlight here is that um, when you say, you know, it took you 16 years and uh, you, you, you were one of the lucky ones. And that is, that is true, right? Because because to your point about um, some of the privileges that you had coming here, uh, not everybody has that option, right? Not everybody has even the opportunity or, or the uh, or is eligible to become a permanent resident or become a citizen, right? Like, I, I, I. It also took me like twenty years from the time I first came to the, to live in the U.S. to when I became a citizen, and it was only because my husband is a U.S. citizen and then I could become eligible. But the majority of the 11 million undocumented people that exist in the country, they don't remain undocumented because they don't want to become or even because they don't have the money, but because they're not eligible to apply in the first place. Like they're just kind of in this limbo until we do create new rules, until we do create new laws that open the door for them to apply. Um, and then the other the other thing that you mentioned was sort of like this backlog. Um, and so I did want to just like uplift a significant issue that is happening with citizenship applications right now, which is that there are over 750,000 citizenship applications um, that and that that backlog has almost doubled since 2015 with the majority of the backlog occurring under the current administration. Um, so now it's taking, you know, over in some places it's taking over 30 months to go from having a green card once you apply to when you actually become a citizen which is almost double the time that it took you and you mentioned like 18 months and like four times the time that it took me because when i applied um, in 2014 i became a citizen 
within like six months after I applied, which is crazy to think wow. about how long it takes now. Um, and then the other part of it is like the fees, right? Like it from it was ninety five dollars in in two thousand. It's close to seven hundred dollars now. Um, but if you are a listener who uh, wants to apply for citizenship and maybe the fee is a um, a barrier, uh, you can go to newamericanscampaign.org uh, slash fee waiver to see if you qualify for a waiver because there are waivers to some of these financial barriers. Um, but getting back into, you know, who are these people that are even making these laws and making it so mm-hmm. difficult for us immigrants and everyone else? Um, you've cited this statistic that out of 500,000 state and local offices, fewer than 2% are held by Asians or Latinos, despite being the largest immigrant groups in the U.S. And in your book, you talk about how Congress still looks like, quote, like it did in the distant past. Its members are 81% white and male, and only 7.1% are women of color. So what are some of the barriers that are keeping these racial and ethnic groups from, one, running for office, and two, being successful when they do run? I mean, I think one of the things is is very tied to the conversation we're having about immigration, right? Like people just don't feel either they don't feel like they belong or they are being made to feel like they don't belong. And so if you're living, psychologically living in a way on the margins, then it's hard to imagine yourself as as a mainstream leader. Um, so I, I really want to lift up that psychological piece of it, because that's not a systemic barrier as much as it is something that we feel about ourselves and the internal glass ceilings. Um, And then you add to that the very, very real uh, systemic issues. Uh, Money is a big one. And we often talk about money as it relates to, you know, the the corporate PACs and the influence of big donors in, uh, in our campaigns. But there's another piece of it that I talk about in my book that I think is very striking that, you know, we, our founding fathers created a government to work for, for them. You know, it, it worked mm-hmm. for plantation owners and business owners who could go off to the state capital or the nation's capital and make policy for people. Um, and, and really, you know, it wasn't a by the people for the people. It was really, uh, it's kind of a top down system of government. And, So now we have this world in which our government is expected to be much more 24-7 and much more uh, available year-round. And a legislator who uh, is in office in Arizona or Colorado or Georgia is making under $30,000 a year. Mm -hmm. They're making salaries that were not adjusted for inflation. So can you imagine what that's like? Like what kind of job do you need to have that will supplement your legislator's salary? And inevitably, yeah. What, yeah, right? So you have, I mean, can you just take 40 days off the year and go off and make policy? I mean, maybe you and I can, but most people can't do that. And and then most people can't survive on $18,000 a year like it is in Georgia or $24,000 a year in Arizona or $30,000 a year in Colorado. And so you, you're basically self-selecting out of running because you're not going to be able to take care of your family. You're not going to be. Right. And, and we shouldn't have to make that choice. We shouldn't have to make the choice between serving our country and making a living. And so that's a very, yeah, I mean, that very was that, that was one of my um, favorite chapters in your book um, titled The Cost The Cost of Public Life. Um, because as you were saying, like these legislators, they have to juggle public lives and 
they often pay a very personal price for their decisions, right? Like, and it's not just like in state and local office. I mean, we kind of saw it with Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez when she was kind of talking about, I can't even afford to pay the rent in DC until I get this first paycheck. And people just kind of being fascinated by that. And I'm sure there are other people that go through it. Maybe they're just not as open to talking about it. Um, so how, how do we how do we over, overcome some of these barriers so that more people, I mean, and that's what you do at New American Leaders, right? You're trying to um, not just inspire, but actually train people, uh, immigrants and children of immigrants to run for, for public office. So what are some of the things that you do in the organization to solve some of these issues? Well, so one of the things that we do is offer a training that's a what I call an introductory to intermediate training that addresses that psychological barrier that I was talking about, um, but it also teaches practical campaign skills. So the core... Uh, mission of our organization is to help first and second generation immigrants understand that they have very strong uh, assets that can be brought to the democratic process. And those assets are our story and all the characteristics of uh, of the immigrant experience. Resilience is one that you mentioned earlier. Uh, you know, our commitment to American democracy, our commitment to making a life here. Uh, so that story is a very powerful piece of it. The second part of it is helping our participants understand that new and low propensity voters are a kind of untapped market, if you will. You know, there's a lot of potential in our communities to participate, and there's no one coming to us and asking us to participate because we're taken for granted. Um, and existing candidates, frankly, are not interested in us because they're winning anyway. So they keep going mm. back to the same old people. Um, and then finally, you know, the the way that we talk about money is really important. In our communities, immigrants are often seen as takers rather than makers. And so we really dig deep into uh, personal stories around money, the challenges that many of us feel about asking for help in the form of money and help our participants understand that asking people to contribute to campaigns, uh, regardless of their income status, is a way of getting them invested in democracy, right? Mm -hmm. So if I give $5, I suddenly become part of a process that I have never been part of. And so that training is important. But, you know, I want to say that a lot of what we do is hand-holding and um, providing support to people so that they feel confident enough to run. And I just want to mention, I mean, you know, the, our, your listeners might have heard uh, that uh, at the end of March, the the DCCC, the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee, announced that it was going to basically blacklist uh, campaign uh, or firms that worked with challengers uh, uh, primary challengers of Democratic candidates. Hmm. So that's someone like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who ran against Joseph Crowley, or someone like Ayanna Presley, who ran against a sitting Congress member in, in uh, Massachusetts. And basically, when you send a message like that, basically what you're saying to people who are new voices, or who could be new voices, we're sending a message, like effectively a threat, that you shouldn't come right. and challenge at primary. And and so when you have things like that, it takes a lot of work to go convince someone that it's worth running because they're going to be, you know, they're not going to get the kind of support that they need to give them an advantage. But it doesn't really matter because we saw with Alexandria and we saw with Rashida Tlaib and Ilhan Omar that it's possible to run a different kind of campaign and still win. But it would be so much easier if we 
had a democracy that was lifting up new voices rather than stamping them down. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's um, that's really disappointing to to hear um, that that's kind of the the stance that they've taken when we've seen how energized people have become by um, you know by the women that that you mentioned, and it's sort of ushering in like a whole new group of people that now care about politics because people who are representing them look like them, talk like them, come from the neighborhoods that they come from. Um, and and so that, you know, that's why like this, this other, this other issue that you, that you touched on, which is the, the sort of like the voters, right? Cause there's like the, the, who's going to run for office. Are they going to represent us? And then there's also the, the voters, the people who are just going to go out and and vote, and I've always looked at some of these statistics about um, low voter turnout in the Latino community or the Asian community, and even though one in three voters are Latino, Asian, or Black, only one half of Asian and Latino citizens voted in 2012, as you've as you've said before. Um, and I think sometimes we look at those statistics and we want to like blame the people and say like, why aren't they coming up to vote? Why don't they care? But I also think that it's a systematic oppression over decades and decades that have made us um, apathetic and skeptical of elections and, frankly, of of politicians a little bit. And you recently wrote an op-ed for The Hill in which you talked about America's democracy problem. And you also shined a line on a new bill called um, For the People Act. And of course, the bill hasn't gotten a ton of media attention because we're all obsessed with Trump's latest <laughs> stupidity. Uh, so can you tell us what is in that bill? Like, what's the bill about and what are the issues that it's trying to solve? Well, some of the components of the bill um, include addressing the role of money in politics. Um, you know, it's about expanding uh, access to voting. Um, I think the the general premise of the bill is to make democracy more accessible and inclusive. Um, and uh, Mitch McConnell has already talked about how he's uh, not going to necessarily bring it to the Senate for a vote. And so you, you know, it's interesting. Why, on, would, why would Mitch McConnell bring <laughs> yes, a bill exactly, to vote that it's going to expand democracy and voting rights for people and especially people of color? And why, why would we want a democracy that works? <laughs> I mean, it just like it's so. But, you know, I, I don't want to be overly Pollyanna-ish, but I will tell you, you know, like the book that I wrote had stories of people who, all of whom who won elections and they all won elections in 2016 and before. So even before, um, you know, the Trump factor, if you will, uh, there were lots of local and state candidates who were knocking on the doors of voters who had never before heard from a candidate. So when you talk about, you know, the numbers of Asians, Asian Americans and Latinos who are not voting, a lot of that has to do with systemic oppression, like you said, but a lot of it also has to do with, we basically are ignored. And so like, you know, when, when you, you said you became a citizen in 2014, Mm-hmm. And I mean, I don't know what, how long it took before you started getting mail from candidates or getting calls. Um, but yeah, ha- I was I actually complained about this on on a on a previous Kruger conversation, too, that I was like, I have not received a single piece of mail from anybody who's who's like running for well, th- we're talking about sort of like the Senate seat, like in um, in the fall. I didn't get a single piece of mail from anybody from anybody that was running for the California uh, Senate seat, not from Dianne Feinstein, not from anyone else. 
Well, and just, I was like, how is that possible? <laughs> well, you know how, it, well, I can tell you, because just you wait, there's in two years, you're going to be getting a lot of mail. And part of it is that you, because I was in the same situation, like, I had already started a nonprofit organization, and then I voted, but I voted o- totally out of my own motivation. No one ever right, contacted same. me. But then, after I had voted two, three, four times in every single primary and every single election, then I suddenly, you know, that's what happens, right? Like, you, then you become on, you get on some magic list where everybody is contacting you all the time. But if you and I had not been personally motivated to get involved, we would never get on those lists and no one would ever call us. And that's what happens to the majority of Asian Americans and Latinos and other new immigrants. They never get asked for their vote. And then it's expensive to vote, right? Because you sometimes you have to take a day off. You know, you have to get make your way there. You might deal with voter oppression at the polling booth. So there isn't really a huge incentive to vote. And that's why these candidates matter so much. Because when I, if I'm a Palestinian American who just became a citizen, maybe I wouldn't have been motivated to vote. But then I see that Rashida Tlaib is on the ballot. Um, and I hear about her, and I think even if she doesn't knock on my door, I feel excited about motivating for voting voting for her. But often, what happens is candidates like that actually do knock on the doors of voters who have never heard from someone. So it's actually no mystery that you're not on the list, but you will be in three election cycles, and then you'll get so much mail um, that you know you won't know what to do with it, uh, or so many calls because maybe people are not doing as much mailing. And, and but but so this is the system. It's a system. If you're not connected, if you haven't been doing it all along, if someone didn't ask you, um, if the cost of voting are high, then you're not going to participate. And we need to change that. And I think the best way to change it is to get the right people running for office, have a lived experience like their voters and like people in their community. And then on top of that, you know, we need to hold these folks accountable. We can't just vote for them and leave them there. We've got to make sure that we're supporting them and telling them what we need. Um, and I think it's, it's to me, that's like the most exciting thing about American democracy. When it works, it works so well. It works so that, like, we can turn on the State of the Union and see all those women in Congress. Right. That was, like, an amazing feeling. Yeah, it really was. I think I cried. I mean, I, I get very emotional uh, like every time I hear the national anthem, I like want to cry. But that particular image of seeing all the women wearing white was was so, so amazing. Crooked Conversations is brought to you by Tommy John. When men and women upgrade from their tattered, outdated multi-pack underwear to Tommy John, the most comfortable on the planet, they have a lot to say. Like Scott, who's happy his double agents are no longer going rogue. Or Melissa, whose Tommy Johns are so light and comfortable, she worries she'll forget to pull them down when she goes to the bathroom. The point is, men and women all across America are crazy about Tommy John. Both Tommy John men's and women's underwear sport a no wedgie guarantee, comfortable state put waistbands, and a range of fabrics that are luxuriously soft and designed to move with you. You don't need your underwear to move against you. Plus, Tommy John has dress shirts and undershirts that always stay tucked, ridiculously soft loungewear, and go-anywhere apparel that's versatile enough to go from boardroom to boxing class. 
And for the ladies, the new air collection is made from quick-drying, antimicrobial fabric and seamless bonded edges that offer a no-visible panty line guaranteed. Where were these underwear when I had to wear a tight dress? Tommy John is so sure you're going to love the fit and feel that it's all backed by their best pair you ever wear or its free guarantee. That means that if you don't love your fair spare, you'll get a full refund. Tommy John, no adjustments needed. Hurry to TommyJohn.com slash CrookedConvos now and get 20% off your first order. That's TommyJohn.com slash CrookedConvos for 20% off. TommyJohn.com slash CrookedConvos. Don't forget to pull your underwear down when you go to the bathroom. And with the work that you're doing at, at New American Leaders, um, what like you've been doing this this work for some time now? And what are some of the lessons that you've learned from like several election cycles that you are that you're going to take and you're going to use for 2020? Well, one of the things that um, I'd say the biggest lesson I learned is that it's not us, it's them. And to them being the system and the people who design the system and the people who continue to preserve the system. Like it, the reason it's so hard to run and win is because the system is not supposed to work for people like us. So I just, I, it's not about blaming something else, but it's about recognizing that as individuals, there's only so far that we're going to go until we change the system. So it works better for more people. Um, but for 2020, you know, I think we're being much, much more intentional about uh, asking people to run in seats uh, where there may be even a Democratic incumbent who's not really doing the job. I think we're being much less... Um, we're being much more proactive. I think, you know, the way our organization works is we train people and we do do a lot of handholding, but we really wait for people to sort of feel ready for an opportunity. And what we're doing now is helping people get more ready and pointing to examples of other people who've challenged primaries, looking at voter turnout and helping them see that, you know what, with another two or 300 votes, you could defeat an incumbent. Um, mm. I think the other thing we're looking at is places that are off the radar that, you know, we, we always think about certain states, the battleground states, but within those states uh, that people are not paying attention to, um, you know, whether that's in Ohio or a, um, a Kansas or a Colorado, there are opportunities there that, um, again, with a small number of votes and a really committed person, you could really change. It, it's not about getting more Democrats in. It's about getting more movement leaders into office so that they can change the way that the system works, so that we can move away from this very transactional nature of politics to a more transformational way of doing things. Um, and, you know, I just want to go back to what you said about how emotional you get about the national anthem. And you heard this probably in my TED talk. Like, it's amazing how optimistic we remain about a country that's not made it easy for us to be here, you know? And I feel like we are the best possible type of citizen, the type of citizen who's like so committed to what America can be. Um, and if we could harness the energy of, you know, all 84 million of us who are immigrants or children of immigrants, like we could have this amazing democracy. And I guess that's what Mitch McConnell mm -hmm. was afraid of, um, that, you know, people will really participate and will really 
have our voices be heard and like that thing that's so frightening to him is so energizing to me right yeah I mean I think you're right because you know when I mean when you think about well when I think about my own life and like just how many challenges have been placed in front of me in like even becoming a U.S. citizen and to your point like yeah I still remain really optimistic about this country and I still remain very invested in the future of this country because you know one day when I have children like this is going to be their home and I want this home to be a place where they feel like they belong where they feel like this place belongs to them um, and where they don't feel like they're outsiders and so much of that is going to come from um, who are the people that are in office? Who are the people that are on television? Who are the people having these podcast conversations? And um, and yeah, I, I I'm very energized and optimistic about what the future of our country can look like. And then you and I feel that way, even though, as we were saying earlier, like we have a very strong connection to another place, right? A place that was a meaningful home for us. Um, but there are many, many millions of people who don't even have that connection to another home. Um, and um, or they, they came from a place that was, you know, a, a difficult place to live, uh, unsafe place to live. And so for them, um, you know, America is... A, a safe haven and a place to um, the only place that they've known freedom and security. And so when you think about like, even people like us who have options, um, and or millions of people who do have options, and still they choose America, because that's yeah. yeah, I always think like I always think that the the time when we need to worry about the future of our country are when people are no longer willing to risk everything and leave everything behind to come to this country. You know, the time the day when people choose to go somewhere else, that's the day when we really need to worry and be like what is happening with our country if people aren't finding this to be like the best place where they can go. Yeah, that's so powerful. I that yeah. that made me emotional. <laughs> um, don't cry. <laughs> mm-hmm. I mean, do what you want, but um, but but I like to have uplifting conversations and leave on a happy note, um, which we'll get to. We'll get to that end happy note. But I I didn't want to go back to um, to this bill because it's not getting a lot of attention. Like actually, I heard about it when I was reading your op ed. Um, this HR one, this HR one bill, um, and I just really, I, I, I know that you wrote in in detail about it, and people should check out the op ed on the hill. Um, but what, like, what are some of the provisions in this bill that we should be like uplifting and talking to people about and trying to get more attention for it? Sure. Yeah. So um, I'll just run through a few of them, uh, and and I think one of the reasons that it didn't get. Um, get that much attention, frankly, is because, you know, every day there's something new in the news that uh, that fuels people's imagination, let's say, more than um, than the real news, if you will. Um, so mm-hmm. a few things. It makes Election Day a federal holiday, um, which, you know, as I, were, I was saying, like, if you have to take the day off uh, to vote and your employer doesn't pay you for that, then that's not 
it's going to not be an incentive to vote. So having election day be a federal holiday, I think, can be a very monumental thing. Um, it also uh, expands automatic and online voter registration and early voting. Again, reducing the effort that you have to make as a voter or as an individual to to register and participate. Um, it also is going to limit the what you know is called the revolving door between lobbyists and government so that a lot of folks leave government and become lobbyists and then they become the people who are effectively deciding what policies mm-hmm. are going to be in place um, and then there is there are some provisions that will help it to um, will help reduce big money the influence of big money in politics right so giving more public matching dollars um, so for example if you and I decide to run we can um, instead of having to um, Uh, rely on corporate PACs, we can get matching funds from the government for our campaigns. Um, And so, so like broadly, making it more possible, making it possible for more people to vote easily uh, without with fewer restrictions, broadly ensuring that there is less reliance on uh, corporate PACs and so that more quote unquote, everyday Americans can run and win office. Um, And then uh, there are also provisions to limit gerrymandering, which some of your listeners, uh, I'm sure are very familiar with. But, you know, it's voters, it, it should be that voters decide who represents them. It should not be that legislators decide who their voters are going to be. And so independent redistricting ensures that in the that the dis- districts are being drawn without the influence of the people who are currently in office. Because if I'm in office in, let's say, uh, Milwaukee, um, representing, you know, representing my district in the Wisconsin State House, um, and after the census figures come out, uh, the maps are being redrawn, and I decide that I want the map to be drawn in such a way that I can ensure that I get elected. And that's what we want to avoid. Like, I shouldn't be the one making the decision about how my district looks. It should be done independently. Um, and so, you know, we could get really wonky about this, um, but the broad provisions are really helping it helping our democracy work better so that there are not, you know, both the the influence comes not just from money, right? The influence also comes from power. So lobbyists might not necessarily be independently wealthy, but they have a lot of power. And so we want to reduce the effect of, of lobbyists on determining what our democracy looks like. Crooked Conversations is brought to you by Robin Hood. Robinhood is an investing app that lets you buy and sell stocks, ETFs, options, and cryptos, all commission-free. While other brokerages charge up to $10 for every trade, Robinhood doesn't charge any commission fees so you can trade stocks and keep all your profits. Plus, there is no account minimum deposit needed to get started, so you can start investing at any level. The simple, intuitive design of Robinhood makes investing easy for newcomers and experts alike. View easy-to-understand charts and market data and place a trade in just four taps on your smartphone. You can also view stock collections such as 100 Most Popular. With Robinhood, you can learn how to invest in the market as you build your portfolio. Discover new stocks, track your favorite companies, and get custom notifications to price movements so you never miss the right moment to invest. Robinhood is giving listeners of Crooked Conversations a free stock like Apple, Ford, or Sprint, to help build your portfolio. 
Sign up at crooked.robinhood.com. Sally, thank you so much. Uh, I've learned so much from this conversation and uh, from reading from reading your book. Um, people should order her book, buy her book. It was great. Um, one last question for you: what What gives you hope that we will that we will get to a more fair and representative democracy in our country? Can I say, like, I love this conversation. I love what you said about, um, you know, what we were just talking about, about how optimistic we feel about democracy. And so that's a concrete example of what gives me hope. And I have many of those conversations around the country. I have conversations with people who, um, you know, are, are themselves undocumented or were formerly undocumented. I have conversations with people who uh, who have family members in prison. I have conversations with people who grew up undocumented and are now in office. Um, I have conversations with women who are victims of domestic violence and are putting themselves out there to run. And so, you know, I, people think that I have a great job, which I do. I think I have a great job. But it's in many ways, it's really easy because it's behind the scenes and it's encouraging people to run. But I'm so moved by the number of people who put themselves out there in the front lines and decide to represent this country, um, people who decide to fight for this country, um, even though they've been undocumented. Um, and, and so I'm, I remain hopeful, like you, that people are continuing to fight to come here and to stay here. And honestly, I'm also really, really encouraged by the women of color who have been elected to Congress who are facing still a lot of opposition, um, but they mm -hmm. continue to speak truth to power and they continue to say, you know what, we're not going to let the system run things. We're going to help change the system so it uh, works better for all of us. And all of that is super exciting to me, especially at a time when we could, you know, we could all be kind of sinking into ourselves and feeling really um, distraught. And we are a little bit that way too, but mostly we're fighting back. Um, the, our organization has doubled the number of applicants it receives since uh, the 2016 election. Um, and so every day I feel really optimistic about how other people are fighting alongside us for a, a democracy that works better. That's great. Thank you so much for being with us today. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for listening and for staying with us this entire month for this very special series. I hope that you were moved into action after hearing this conversation. I know that I'm excited for the 2020 elections to get um, even more women of color elected into office. And let's just, let's do this. Let's go get more people elected into office. If you haven't listened to our other three conversations this month, make sure to catch up. This month, we introduced you to four women who are on the brink of making history. We've spoken with Maya Rupert, Amanda Wang, Steph Hammerman, and today, of course, we spoke with Saju Banjwani. I want to give a special thanks to all of our guests who shared their inspirational stories. I have so enjoyed speaking with them and all of our guests on Crooked Conversations. Thank you for tuning in. Till next time, stay hopeful, my friends. Hi. 
Hi, it's Martha Stewart. You know, I spend a lot of time thinking about dirt. At 3 a.m.? At all hours of the day, really. What people don't know is that not all dirt is the same. You need dirt with the right kind of nutrients. New miracle Grow organic raised bed and garden soil is so dense, so full of nutrient-rich, high-quality ingredients. miracle Grow is simply the best. 